up until now, the entire Israeli political discourse has been fought over who's tougher on security, and it always favors the right. If they're now competing on a turf of liberalism, you know, ultimately the parties who do that best and who do it most naturally and authentically and organically are the left-wing parties in Israel. Welcome to the 972 Podcast, where we interview activists, politicians, and journalists about issues and stories that other media outlets tend to ignore. I'm Henriette Chakar. And I'm Ido Conrad. Hi, Ido. Hi, Henriette. What are we talking about this episode? Well, we're just a week after the second Israeli election of the year, and there's no clear winner as of yet. I spoke to 972 writer and policy expert Dahlia Scheinlein about the results of the elections and how we should make sense of them. She says that despite the fact that the occupation was almost entirely absent from this election cycle, there is a potential for some kind of revival of secular liberalism in Israel. That sounds like a contradiction to me. I mean, how can a step toward more annexation mean a return of liberalism? Yeah, it's a bit counterintuitive. I'll let Dahlia explain. Hi, Dahlia. Thank you so much for being with us today. Ido, thank you for inviting me again. And thank you, Henriette, too. So we're a week out from the second elections of 2019, in which the Blue and White Party, rivals of the ruling Likud Party, actually won the election uh, with 33 seats in the Knesset, uh, as opposed to Likud's 32 seats. This is, on the face of it, a change from the previous elections. But have things actually shifted? Have things changed since the last elections? Saying that blue and white won is a little bit like saying that Hillary Clinton won the 2016 elections. They got the most number of votes in a parliamentary system, not by a lot. And according to the electoral system and the way government formation works in Israel, We have no idea who actually won in terms of who's going to lead the country. So that didn't change. We didn't know that after April 2019, and we don't know that now. The other thing that hasn't changed is the broad breakdown of right-wing versus center and left-wing parties and center and left-wing bloc, which includes the Arab-Palestinian parties. That basic breakdown didn't change. What did change are relatively small percentages of people who shifted the map a little bit. So one major change, and I think really the biggest change that shifted the whole map is that we had about 10% higher turnout from the Arab-Palestinian population of Israel. They only voted at about 49% in April and now 59%. That led to three more seats for the joint list than the combination of the Arab parties last time, uh, which obviously you know, kept, uh, kept some of the, the electoral power for the center-left opposition bloc. The other thing that happened was that people primarily within the right-wing bloc of parties, in other words, people who are right-wingers in Israel, shifted their votes a little bit. Not very many of them. Uh, Lieberman's party got 3% more. Those are people who came mostly from right-wing parties. A lot of them came from Likud or primarily, I would say, from uh, Moshe Kahlon's party, which rejoined Likud but didn't bring any extra seats, or vote people who voted for Moshe Feiglin last time because they were looking for something a little bit different but still on the right. Maybe some, vo- I think you know, I think some voters from Blue and White 
went to Lieberman, but then were replaced by some other moderate right-wing voters. But we're talking about very, very small numbers here. Not enough to significantly change the size of the blocks. It's true in the longer-term scope of the right-wing versus the center-plus-left bloc that the right-wing bloc seems to have lost two seats, if you include Lieberman, ideologically within the right. And that's interesting. They got 65 last time. They have 63 this time. It looks like a decline of two seats. In the medium term, that's a decline because in 2015, they had 67 seats. Then they went down to 65 in April. Now they're at 63. It looks like a trend. But if you take it back 10 years, you see that there's not that much variation. Um, and the closest I can, you know, we're, the closest I can uh, compare the current results to is 2013, when the right-wing bloc only got 61 seats altogether, and the center plus left got 59, primarily by virtue of a big centrist party. At that time, it was Yair Lapid. Now we have blue and white taking that position and you know, maybe boosting the fortunes of that other bloc. But the way, the way things are going now, it doesn't really look like we're going to have a different bloc taking over. It looks like we're going to have something like a unity government, which would mean a bridging of the two blocs from the middle mainstream. Uh, as blue and white is all too happy to say, they don't differ that much from Likud when it comes to some of the towering issues, primarily on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and even regional uh, policy for Israel. So it's hard to see where we're going to get any sort of real change of direction for Israel. So that's a long way of saying what didn't change is the uncertainty of who's going to lead the country. What didn't change is the general ideological breakdown of the voters in Israeli society. And what probably won't change is the basic direction Israel's taking with relation to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and foreign affairs. And internally, it's hard to see any serious sign of change on economic affairs because blue and white doesn't really have much of an economic vision, just a bunch of sort of specific uh, consensus kinds of promises. And maybe, maybe, maybe there will be a difference in the balance and tension around religion and state inside Israel. Maybe there will be a little bit more separation of religion and state. Maybe some rolling back of the sort of nasty populist rhetoric that we see and an attack on the judiciary that's been going on for years. Maybe that some of that will be reined in, but we don't know. There are a lot of we don't knows after this election. Can you talk a little bit about why people have been so attracted to blue and white. After 10 years of Netanyahu, you say that they don't actually offer anything significantly different than the ruling party. Why are people going to blue and white? What's the, what's the catch there? Well, this is one of those great moments for a public opinion researcher where what you hear anecdotally, if you talk to individuals and your friends who may be voting for blue and white, I'm sure you have lots of friends who are voting for blue and white, Ido. Um, <laughs> Uh, if you talk to them, you will see the exact same thing that we see in surveys, which is that the, only, you know, the towering issue that brings them together is the desire to end the reign of Netanyahu from people who are essentially centrist. And when I say centrist, I mean they define themselves as centrist. Uh, they are more secular than most right-wingers. They are not left-wingers. So they consider themselves to be centrist. They would prefer separation of religion and state, they generally could get their minds around a two-state solution, but they're not rushing to support it. But more than anything else, what unites them is the desire to replace Netanyahu. Who can replace Netanyahu? A big party. Blue and White started as a big party, first of all, because it brought 11 seats from Yair Lapid, and then it did this wonderful thing of bringing in an IDF chief of staff. 
And Benny Gantz, you know, I call him the man who's not there. We've been living with him in our living rooms over our morning coffee. You know, before we go to bed at night, if we listen to the, if we watch TV or listen to the radio, we've been living with Benny Gantz since December. And I don't know a thing about him. Israelis like him because he brings with him the general aura of appreciation and trust that 90% of Israelis have in the IDF. That's a number that is very stable over the years. And that's a number that's actually a little bit artificial because Israeli Jews support the IDF or trust the IDF at an even higher rate. It's brought down to around the upper 80s, 90% mark because Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel don't trust it quite as much naturally. And that's what he brings with him. He brings an image of being a straightforward, professional, less ideological person. That's how the army is perceived. And I think that his decision not to express himself in clear ideological terms is a very conscious decision, either because he was advised that that's the best way to keep together this coalition of broad centrists, some center-left types, some, you know, a small, small slice of center-right types. Um, Maybe he was advised to be cautious about sounding too ideological in any direction. But I have a, a, a sneaking suspicion that he hasn't got a strong political ideology about the direction Israel should take on the main issues that define who it is. Other than, again, I can imagine that he truly supports greater separation of religion and state, uh, but that's only because he says this word that is very bonton right now, which I've written about, liberal. We want a liberal government. That has pretty much become a euphemism for a less religious government and not much else. So as long as it's boiled down to just that one angle, that one factor, we don't know if there's any greater worldview that goes along with it. And I haven't heard anything Benny Gantz has said to indicate anything like a values-based worldview or a thought-out approach to life or governance or Israeli society. Uh, He talks and talks, and if you listen to what he says, well, he doesn't talk that much, but when he does talk, and you listen to what he says... He tends to talk about the kind of government he wants to establish. He tends to talk about unity in Israeli society, getting past the divides. It all sounds nice, but it all sounds like nothing. I want to go back to what you said about liberalism. Uh, you published a piece in The Forward this week uh, in which you described a sort of potential liberal revival in Israel. Is that what we're actually seeing Are we seeing a liberal revival in Israel after 10 years of a right-wing government and an increasingly far-right-wing government, increasingly authoritarian government? What does a liberal revival look like in Israel? I mean, I think that what, what I found fascinating about thinking about that question to write that piece was that I think we're very, very actually far from a liberal revival. Um, I think that in a way, the parties are just identified a politically expedient sort of niche in the Israeli set of ideas uh, that they thought we need to establish a liberal government, or they don't mean liberal, what they really mean is a secular government or a government without the ultra-Orthodox so that we can get a lot of things done that we know many Israelis want. Which is, think, which is what Blue and White at least promised during the election. Absolutely. And Lieberman. In other words, they're competing for the same thing. And they're not the only parties they are now saying we can advance a liberal government or a liberal society, but what they really mean is just we can limit the power of ultra-Orthodox. And I think that Likud ended up getting into that fight as well. And of course, the left-wing parties, specifically Democratic Union, not so much labor, but they all started competing over this idea of separation of religion and state. It's not new, but it became kind of a, a new uh, arena of political competition in these elections. How? And Why did that happen in these elections? I think it started, like so many of our interesting political developments over the last uh, 15 years. It started with Lieberman. 
he identified it as an issue that he thought would just be kind of a good um, issue for him to stake out his political fortunes uh, on that on this on these grounds in the negotiations for the coalition in April. He identified an opportunity. It was sort of a you know another another strong aspect of his identity as a party alongside attacking the Arab minority, uh, talking tough on Palestinians, um, which has been something that worked for him in the past. But I think this is he just identified this as a new issue that that works for him, but also speaks to a slice of right wingers who are secular, who want to vote for a right wing party, but are really concerned about a sort of religious encroachment on public life. So he went for that slice. And that slice is not so small. Right wingers in Israel are about half of the Israeli adult population. They break down almost half and half between firm right, who are more religious, and moderate right, who are somewhat less religious. Out of the entire right-wing population, I estimate about a quarter to a third of them are secular, because that's the breakdown, the range that I tend to get in my surveys. And he wanted those votes, but Likud traditionally owns those votes, so they started fighting back on the same turf. Benny Gantz and Blue and White said, hey, we can get some of those votes too. Let's get in on the game. So when I look at this question of why they're all fighting over the word liberalism, it's just a euphemism that they are using for complete political expediency, nothing else. But in a way, ironic, you know, in a way they may be tra- not trapped, but dragged by their own political rhetoric into a future of competing over this idea, which might eventually, maybe this is too hopeful, uh, bring along with it contradictions. If you're going to fight for a liberal identity and... For you, it only means religion and state for these parties at the moment. But the more people think about that and what goes along with that and why we're actually fighting for a more secular state, maybe they would have to ultimately face what liberalism really stands for, which is something much bigger, a broader set of worldviews focused on rights of the individual, um, rights and respect and dignity for the individual, even self-determination eventually, um, civil rights, human rights, um, lots more of that kind of uh, what's come to, you know, it's come to mean a more kind of cosmopolitan, open global approach. I mean, there's many different ways you can look at it. Of course, in Israel, the word liberal historically has been associated with the economic approach of a free market society as opposed to socialism. So that's another axis where Likud might think that it kind of has a monopoly, but now Yamina's trying to get in on that, or Ayala Shaked, I should say. So there's a few different axes of liberalism in Israel. And in any case, what I think I'm hoping, or what I think I'm identifying, uh, and that's what I wrote in the piece, is that the parties are starting to compete over those different axes. And I don't think it can remain defined solely by the way they're trying to define it now, which is along one specific axis. Ultimately, that will open up people's eyes, hopefully, and the discourse to all the other related values of a liberal society. And I don't think we're there yet. I think we're far from there yet. I think I, my real point about the article was a question mark. Are we looking at a liberal revival? My answer is, if so, it's a long way coming. But, I, but it's interesting that this is you know, a new conversation that's open now. There's a gulf between the way Americans understand that word, liberal, right? And the way, let's say, Israelis understand liberal. How do you bridge that gap? Is there a way to bridge that gap? I mean, I don't think that we can expect Israel to speak American. I mean, it's, it's tempting to think that because the countries like to think they have so much in common. And in terms of their leadership right now, Netanyahu and Trump certainly have lots in common. Right. But we should remember they are two distinct societies. And I think that Israel's different history um, and, you know, different value set is quite on display when you think about what liberal means. Again, historically, liberalism meant, uh, you know, free market uh, capitalism 
by contrast to a reigning socialist ethic, even though the, the, the dominant socialist ethic was always a bit of a myth as well and not quite so you know, socialist as we like to think. There were, there were you know, significant streams of um, development of the private sector and free market capitalism in Israel from its early days, even before 1977 when Likud took over. So that shouldn't be overstated as well. On the one sense, liberal, the, idea, the word liberalism will always carry those connotations in Israeli society, especially now we talk about neoliberalism. It will never quite mean only what we mean by it in America, which in America tends to mean Again, uh, you know, lack of conventionalism, open-mindedness, breaking down traditional systems of social organization, uh, op- you know, uh, like I said, um, uh, focus on civil rights and human rights. In Israel, I think the question is, will the parties that have a natural advantage on the latter, okay, the focus on individual rights, uh, you know, protection of minorities, state institutions, um, Having, having the responsibility and the empowerment to be independent enough to restrain the power of the majority, um, those kind, that kind of liberalism, I think, is ultimately the arena of the left-wing parties in Israel. And this is like the second part or the second kind of, or the conclusion of what I'm hoping will be the end of this liberal arrival. And up until now, the entire Israeli political discourse has been fought over who's tougher on security. I mean, that's the overriding issue, and it always favors the right. If they're now competing on turf of liberalism, you know, ultimately the parties who do that best and who do it most naturally and authentically and organically are the left-wing parties in Israel. Now you could say, and you might be about to challenge me on that and say, but the left-wing parties include commun- the Communist Party and socialists, and that's not a very liberal approach because they would argue for greater state control over things like uh, freedom of choice in the economic sector. But I think those forces are really much more of a relic. They're a symbolism. They've, they themselves are now a euphemism. You know, the Israeli Communist Party is basically a relic that stands primarily for the idea of social justice, much more than, you know, renationalizing state enterprises, which I don't think anybody truly believes in. It stands for maybe a social democratic approach, social stronger social welfare, social safety net, um, and maybe there's an argument over state subsidies for, you know, the weakest communities, but it's nobody's advocating going back to, you know, old style communism. And so I think that there is a, a natural advantage for the center, for the left wing parties, not just the centrists. The centrists, I don't know what they stand for in terms of a social vision, you know, blue and white, like we said before. But if there is a natural advantage for the left wing parties, maybe we'll start to see more Israelis coming to the conclusion, wait a second. Why are we running after the right-wing parties when the left-wingers do this part better? Now, we know, to be real, let's get real, that right-wingers are not about to suddenly flood, you know, or like just cross the line and vote for parties that they don't agree with on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and on Jewish-Arab issues in general and on national identity issues. They will not change their minds about that overnight or maybe at all. But I think the question is which value set ultimately is dominant. And are we, are we going to continue in a situation where one value set, the issue of security, dominates so powerfully over everything else that many people today and throughout Israel's history come to the conclusion that, yes, I'd like to have a more secular society. I'd like to vote based on religion and state, but I will never vote for a party that I don't agree with uh, in terms of security, to a situation where we say, you know, I have to weigh both of these considerations equally. Are we heading in that direction? It often seems I don't like we're know. Heading. But I, it, right, it does seem contradictory. It Not seems only like, contradictory, that 
you can actually have those two views as contradictory and, and continue living life as it is. Yeah. Well, that's what no Israelis have done up until now. No one's actually holding the Israeli, Israeli's feet to the fire when it comes to, to security. Meaning nobody's challenging Israel to give up on it? No, I mean, nobody will challenge Israel. Nobody will ask Israel to give up on its security. The question is, can security be redefined in a broader way? Uh, will something, will, will people who advance a liberal worldview in a broader sense come to the conclusion that it simply cannot reconcile itself to a situation where Israel holds so many people under its control without giving them civil and human rights exactly. or, and violating their civil right. and human rights. Are we heading there? I don't know, but I, but I have to say that, uh, so on the one hand, you have you know, the last decade where I've argued in other places, I've written a, you know, a long paper on this for the Century Foundation, showing how all of those many forms of erosion of Israel's democratic institutions, values, legislation, rhetoric, um, civil society, has been sort of laying the groundwork for Israel to permanently control the West Bank, parts of the West Bank, and many Palestinians without giving them citizenship. However, if we're now looking at a, a greater consciousness over the meaning of liberalism, a, sec, you know, a society that, that does uh, respect the individual, and I hear many right-wingers almost boasting of this. I'm right-wing, but I'm a liberal. So what does that actually mean? I mean, I think that we're seeing some interesting conversations, you're all going to be surprised to hear me say this, among right-wingers who are pro-annexationist, who say openly that they support giving citizenship to Palestinians uh, who are annexed for a couple of reasons. First of all, they do a little demographic dance in their head and they don't believe there are as many Palestinians as there are in the areas where they're talking about annexing. But also because I think that they genu genuinely believe to themselves that they would not be the kind of people to deny uh, full civil rights in a country that they insist is democratic. And they insist that, it, that Israel's democratic. I mean, these kinds of right-wingers, I mean, these kinds, when I say these kinds, I mean annexationists who are, you know, very open now about their annexationist policies. And they could be annexationists for settlements, they could be annexationists for Area C, or they could openly say, I support um, uh, Israeli sovereignty over the entire Judea and Samaria, including one of the people who might also become a prime minister in the coming years, Yuli Edelstein. He's been speaker of the Knesset, he's number two on Likud list, and he has openly said we need to have sovereignty over Judea and Samaria. And I think that there, are, there is a prominent group of people, including within Likud, but also I hear it, I hear it among some, certain settlers too. Of course we would give them citizenship. Then they have a debate about whether citizenship includes the right to vote or not, but some of them break down right. on, the, on, the, on the side of giving them the right to vote. So these are conversations that are increasingly being had. I sometimes wonder if it's if it's a prominent conversation among settlers, because there are so many Americans among the settler community who are religious Jews, committed religious Zionists, annexationists, you know, open about that, but also say, well, I'm, I mean, I'm American. We wouldn't stand for second class, you know, for, for second class citizens or uh, anything that smacks of what the Jewish community has traditionally rejected in America. But maybe I'm, maybe it's wishful thinking. <laughs> I want to challenge you just about the framing of this entire conversation about liberalism, it almost seems like an internal Israeli-Jewish conversation that leaves not only 20% of Israel's population out, the Palestinian population of Israel, but also Palestinians in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the occupied territories. For someone looking from the outside in, it almost seems, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes, that a conversation about a liberal Israel just seems almost... Not impossible, but you'd have to significantly, fundamentally change the structure of this country for people who are disadvantaged and disenfranchised by the way this country is set up and structured 
to benefit a certain group of people in order for it to be a truly liberal, let's say, democracy or a liberal country. I agree. I agree. And I think that um, one of the things that Israel has to do now is realize that if it's going to promote an annexationist policy, and it is promoting an annexationist policy, whether we declare it or not, Israel is annexing every day on the ground in real physical terms. I personally can no longer look at Israel as just Israel. I always find myself saying Israel-Palestine because that is the reality. There's no real separation of the two. And the way I see it, Israeli society has to get to a more inclusive vision of who its citizen body is. And of course, five million Palestinians are not citizens, but they are part of our body politic because we control them. And so the way I see that happening is twofold. I think that Israel, this is one of the many reasons why I support greater political integration for the Arab-Palestinian parties in Israel. I think that there's a very interesting, controversial, divisive conversation about that happening in new ways now because the leader of the joint list, Ayman Oda, has been you know, very um, bold in putting out new proposals for greater integration. I hear this conversation. I feel like I'm part of it on the one hand, but it's not really my conversation, but it is my conversation as a citizen of Israel. So... Um, I know where I fall out. I think there has to be greater integration, not as a matter of legitimizing, you know, what a Zionist government does, but as a matter of adding their voice and hopefully, you know, shifting the direction of what Israel's government really is on that level. And on the other level, uh, I think that we need to, uh, that Israeli society in general needs to open up its consciousness of who is included in our narrative, like in a very banal sense, every day. Who are we talking about? How are we thinking about our population. And so on the day of the elections, this is not to, you know, toot my own horn, but I mean, this is just a tiny, 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 minuscule example that very, you know, nobody noticed. And I completely understand it. But just as a tiny example, on election day, when everybody was, including me, busy, you know, working the social media, um, what do you call them, lines, the social media networks, uh, everybody was giving their comments. I gave lots of election commentary, but I also uh, tweeted out an article by a friend and colleague, Sam Bahur, who wrote a very interesting article about how Election Day happened to fall on the anniversary of the Sabra and Shatila massacres. And I thought, you know, this is who we are. On the day of our elections, we need to also remember that we have to think about the other you know, people who are part of our political community. This is their experience. We should not separate those two. Every Israeli should keep this in mind all the time. Not because I want to you know, preach or tell them what to think about it. But just so we know, these are, this, these are the people in your neighborhood, my neighborhood, our neighborhood. We control these people. And one day we'll have to acknowledge that they need equal rights if we're going to maintain control. So I know that's a very kind of soft, mushy consciousness. But I do think that it starts from seeing ourselves as this is our political community. I want to go back to the elections for a second. The occupation, annexation, aside from Netanyahu's promise to annex the Jordan Valley, uh, should he win the election and form a government, the, the occupation was almost entirely absent from these elections. As you said, they focused on ostensibly liberal values, separation of religion and state. Usually elections actually do revolve around not necessarily the occupation, but about the peace process. A lot of elections have been referendums on leaders who have tried to promote the peace process or in you know, Ariel Sharon's case, the Gaza disengagement. Why were they absent this time around? Why was this Israel's largest national project, why, why was it absent from the elections? 
Well, first of all, I don't think this is the first time it's been absent from the elections, I have to say. I mean, you're right that there were times in the past, like when Ariel Sharon ran. But remember, Ariel Sharon ran for prime minister in 2003. That's 16 years ago. In 2006, he thought he would run for prime minister, but then he had a stroke and then another stroke and he didn't run. But of course, Ehud Olmert did run largely on the issues. But remember, it wasn't an issue. He didn't run on the peace process. He ran on the disengagement plan. Right. Actually, the disengagement had already happened and he was running on a future plan called something like... Well, in Hebrew, it was called the Hitkansut. I don't know if anybody remembers this. And yeah, you're looking at me like, what does that mean? Well, most Israelis didn't know what it meant either. But it had something to do with gathering more settlers into the big blocks so we wouldn't keep expanding into the West Bank and sort of setting the stage for future separation, maybe in a unilateral way. Right, but, but the occupation was on the table. It was on the table, even if it wasn't related to the peace process you directly. You are right. But I think it is, first of all, to shift, because in previous years, in 1999 and 2001, special elections for prime minister, the peace process was on the table. By 2006, the issue was on the table as a conflict that probably couldn't be resolved, but at least this is what Israel should do about it. Already the Palestinians were kind of absent from that. And by 2009, that would, might be the last time there was anything like an election that was a referendum on the peace process because there had been the... Uh, the process led by Ehud Olmert in 2008 in Annapolis. And to some extent, that was a big part of the competition. Kadima was the centrist party that was defined as centrist based on its approach to the conflict, um, as opposed to Blue and as opposed to Yair Lapid, who tried to be centrist based primarily on social economic issues. And I would say 2009 was the last time we had anything to do with it. I mean, every election since then has been largely about Netanyahu, Netanyahu's you know, governing style, right-wing religious parties versus parties that deal with economic and social issues in 2013. Um, In 2015 already, we were looking at an election that was already largely a referendum around Netanyahu. We forget that now because it was dwarfed by April and uh, the September elections in 2019, but it was a very similar debate back then, uh, very minimally talking about issues. Already everybody was trying to avoid the issue. So it's not new. And if you conduct public opinion studies I mean, I, I, can't, I just can't say this enough. If you ask about priorities and you ask people, what are the two biggest problems facing your life in Israel today? Security is always up there. It's usually either number one or two. In fact, it's usually number two. Number one is economic issues. Um, when there's a war, security becomes number one. But resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is way down at four or five. Or, you know, depending on... the. Of course, that that's a divisive issue. So for the right wing, it's even lower. For the left wing, it's significantly higher, maybe second place. Um, And for the center, it's sort of in in between the two. But even for center and left wingers, it's not number one. And I think that the reason for that is because everybody has reached a state of paralyzed despair. I don't think it's because Israelis, by and large, are truly in love with the occupation Really, I don't believe that. I think there is a slice of the right wing who wishes to continue uh, and really supports this because they think that Israel deserves and can reach greater Israel. And they may be, they may be right. But I think you know everybody else, the moderate right, the center, the left, certainly the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel, don't really love this. I mean, when I say don't really love this, I mean, even the moderate right, I think, is, you know, wishes it didn't have to be this way, but they don't believe there's a process. They don't trust the other side. They blame the other side entirely. Palestinians are all the reason Israel's not to blame. And therefore, Israel has no choice. This is the reigning narrative among, uh, you know, a wide swath of Israelis who I think 
genuinely wish they didn't have to be in a situation of occupation, but uh, ultimately come out on the side of, if this is what we have to do because there is no other option, this is what we have to do. And that is such a depressing thought that many just throw up their hands, put it way down low on their priorities, and vote based on other things. But security is one of those other things. In other words, it might seem like a contradiction. Uh, Why do Israelis place security so high? But resolving the conflict, though, don't they see that those two are intertwined? Well, they do not. And that is the great failure of the 1990s. I'm not going to blame it on the left, but I think that one of the left's main arguments was that if we reach peace, that will bring security. It was like killing two birds with one stone. We can be both morally just and satisfy the right and everybody's need for security. I shouldn't say it's just a right-wing thing. Everybody wants security, legitimately so. On both sides, by the way, I think we tend to forget that Palestinians, if you do survey research and if you look at their lives, suffer you know extreme threats and violations of their own security, and it is a major, major fear for them too. But talking about Israeli society and how they vote, no, Israelis after the 1990s said in their experience, what they understood is that we started a peace process and got suicide bombs. And that's what happened in the 1990s. And most Israelis you know, are, not pre- you know, are not prepared to entertain a different way of thinking about it um, for all sorts of reasons. I don't, you know, I, I don't dismiss what happened in the 1990s. I lived through it, and it was uh, very violent and bloody, I mean, for all sides. But they don't see the despair of Palestinians who watched you know, settlements growing throughout the decade, watched the promises broken, watch their lives deteriorate into a morass of bureaucracy and movement restrictions and economic decline over, well, I mean, there's been phases of economic growth, but economic decline in terms of, uh, you know, these major, major restrictions on people's lives and businesses. And Israelis, you know, just, they just can't go there. So what happened in the 1990s was that idea that, that I think, the, you know, the pro-peace parties and the left wing in Israel were trying to promote, that peace is what will bring us security was dashed throughout the 1990s and then and then the second intifada came along um and and it deepened that narrative further you know the israeli memory and understanding of what happened in camp david was that ehud barak gave them a reasonable you know very generous offering and they responded with violence and therefore peace does not equal security and the left is still reeling with that today i mean the growth of the centrist parties was essentially you know these parties that said We'll take this idea of security. We'll also talk about, you know, potentially getting to a two-state solution, ending the occupation. But we're not actually going to posit ourselves as a left-wing bloc. We're not actually going to. You're posit saying the center says that? Yeah. Yeah, but they don't. Right. Actually, right. blue and white does not mention the word two-state solution anywhere in their platform. Is that because the center has shifted along with the population? The center has shifted to the right along with the population. Sort of. I mean, your Lapid's platform actually does talk about getting to a two-state solution. Um, but I think what happened was when Blue and White was formed, the idea was that you would take a party associated with the center-left, in Israeli terms, Yair Lapid, not that I think he's left, but that's Israelis who are center-left see him as center-left, and join him up with, A, a figure who's not particularly politically, you know, ideologically branded in Israel, which is Benny Gantz, chief of staff, a former chief of staff, and people who were associated with the hard National, with a nationalist secular right. People from Netanyahu's government, you know, his former spokesperson or a communications advisor, whatever his title was, Yoaz Hendel, and his former cabinet secretary, Tzvika Hauser. These people are really well known as strong right-wing figures. Tzvika Hauser is associated with the Kohelet Forum. They put out papers, you know, advocating greater annexation. And, you know, I mean, they are responsible for the real ideological meat 
of the right-wing vision for Israel. And never, never mind, of course, uh, the former defense secretary, defense secretary, minister of defense, uh, Moshe Yalon. So I think the idea of blue and white was to break out even of the shade of left something that was associated with Yair Lapid and create a party that they hoped would pull from the moderate right. They didn't really do it. I mean, they got a small slice of the moderate right. Maybe that's one of the reasons why the right-wing bloc lost a little bit, because a few right-wingers moved to blue and white, but most of the right-wingers who moved moved within the bloc. Right. So they weren't very successful at it. I think some, the big question some people are asking is, why weren't they more successful, even though they had these right-wing figures? But to answer your question, that party was created as a genuine uh, reflection of something far more center-right than Yair Lapid. Right. It's ironic because the people who vote for them, ultimately, the vast majority are centrists. And centrists in Israel, people who define themselves as centrist, used to be left-wingers. About half of them used to be left-wingers. They support a two-state solution. They are not clamoring for it. They don't love the concessions that Israel would have to make, but they're not ideologically opposed to it. And they'd rather, you know, end this in, in a way... Um, certainly in a way that's favorable to Israel, but they would go further than the blue and white leadership certainly is willing to go. I want to talk about the other side of the potential so-called liberal revival, which is the right-wing religious parties in Israel. Meron Rappaport wrote a piece on 972 last week saying that uh, the right-wing pro-annexationist parties actually took a blow in the last elections. Is that true? Are we seeing a decrease in their influence, in their power? I don't think so. I mean, I agree. I, I agreed a lot with Meron's piece because I think there is a division within the right. I see it within the right-wing public, those who identify as firm right versus moderate right. There are very clear distinctions. Their parties are sort of offering different things, mostly on religious issues. But find me a right-wing party who's not annexationist at this point. Even blue and white, I would argue, is annexationist because they argue that they want to strengthen the settlement blocks and annex the Jordan Valley. And when Netanyahu said he wanted to annex part of the Jordan Valley, they, they said, said that was their idea. Thank you for adopting our platform. I mean, I, I don't really believe that it breaks down over annexation. The only person who doesn't support that kind of annexation is Lieberman. And Lieberman, by contrast, supports stripping Arab-Palestinian citizens of their citizenship. So, you know, I would be... I'm and as a settler. <laughs> and as a settler. And he's a settler. And... So I don't totally agree with the kind of breakdown. I agree with Mayron that there is a split, and I think it's an interesting split, and I have looked at some of the numbers, um, looking at where Likud votes went. Um, so I, I, I really support reading that article because I think that there's an interesting point there. I didn't agree with his math. It looked a little more dramatic in the math than I think is the reality. The reality is that Likud itself only lost 28,000 votes. 28,000 votes, maybe closer to 29,000 votes. That's not a lot. That's not even one mandate. The reason they lost three mandates is because of the shift of the electoral map. And the reason they lost even more is because they could have gotten Moshe Kahlon's four seats. Right. Kahlon merged his right. party with Moshe Likud Kahlon in the run-up his party to the with Likud. He should have brought four more seats, but he didn't. None of those people, it seems. But actually, that's not true. I saw one survey just before the elections, one of the last published surveys, showing that about a quarter of them said told researchers that they would stay with Likud. But apparently they were offset by other people who left. So overall, Likud could have gotten 39 theoretically, but only got 32 as of today. They lost seven seats in terms of their potential, but they lost 
three seats relative to what they got in April. The only, the, again, the only gap between people who actually voted Likud in April and September is very small. And I tried to find those people, and I did, and I found a few people. I actually didn't find anybody who moved from um, Likud to Lieberman, even though I think they, they exist. They must have. Some of them must have moved to Lieberman. I found two people, three actually, who moved from Likud to Yamina, Ayelet Shaked's party. She represents the national religious. She represents the national religious. And it's very pro-annexationist. Right. So they certainly didn't leave Likud over that. Uh, and there's annexationists in the Likud, and there's annexationists to the right of Likud, and they're not, nobody doubts that. Right. They left for different reasons. One person told me he left because he wanted to make sure the right-wing bloc was strong enough by strengthening the other parties. Another person left because she just loves Ayala Chaked. <laughs> and another person said he left because Bibi's been in power too long, and as in a democratic sense, that's gone on too long. Therefore, he's supporting Yamina. But it's not about annexation. annexation no, because is, is annexation here to stay? Uh, it will be very hard to roll back at this point. And I'm not talking about the legal aspect of it. Legally, Israel has not yet formally annexed any of those parts, except for its formal annexation over East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. And anybody who tells you that it's not formal annexation because the law only speaks about extending sovereignty is pulling one over on their own mind. There is no difference on the ground, and even legal scholars have a hard time coming up with a real difference on this. Um, that's the only place Israel has annexed in the past. So on the, on the legislative level, on the legal perspective, on the political perspective, annexation can be undone. Right now, it's just political rhetoric. Yeah. But on the ground, every day, new neighborhoods of settlements are cropping up. Now, I purposely didn't say new settlements are cropping up because they're not called new settlements. Netanyahu will say, we don't build new settlements. Right. That's okay. Go to visit any settlement, and the first thing you'll see are the tractors. And you'll see the new neighborhood, and everybody's proud to show you the new neighborhood. Um, a person from Mitzpah Yericho, a settler who is very active on social media, was proud a few days ago to say, look at the new neighborhood that's, being, that's been under construction for several years, and now they've just turned their lights on. Isn't this beautiful at night, how it's all lit up? I mean, nobody's hiding this. Now, with those neighborhoods comes more infrastructure. With more infrastructure comes more people. And with more people comes more army. It's going to be very hard to roll all that back. Right. Impossible? I don't know. But I don't see a political environment that contributes to it anytime soon. Dahlia, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm Henriette Chakar. This episode was produced by myself and Ido Conrad. If you like what you hear, make sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you get a heads up whenever there's a new episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, we can't emphasize this enough. It really, really helps us if you leave a review, because that way your friends can also listen to our podcasts, and then you can have a listening party and talk about our episodes and just be huge fans of everything we do. Thank you so much, you guys. Oh, this is going so well. Why did you do that? You sabotaged it.